Okay. We are going to be in the book of James. We're going to be finishing up today. And uh, let me get there. James chapter 5. Starting with verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you will not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church. And they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of the faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth, and someone turns him back, uh, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word, and we thank you that you love us so much that you reach into our lives to instruct us with uh, what you want us to do. And I pray this morning as we just cover prayer and the things in this passage that you would just help us to seek your will and help us to learn how to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're finishing up the rest of the book today. Um, It's probably the longest I've stated one single book that has five chapters, but um, it's been a good one. There's been a lot to what James has to say that is impactful on my life, and uh, I hope that those of you who have been here through the majority of it has gotten something out of it as well. Uh, This is a very different passage for me to uh, understand, not understand, sometimes understand, but to interpret because there's kind of a different flow to this. There's just some final instructions that he gives us that are focusing on a couple different things. They all relate to each other, but it's just kind of focusing on some different things. The main theme to this this morning in this passage is going to be prayer. And if you remember last Sunday, we talked about prayer. Pastor Bill talked about prayer. We didn't sit down and coordinate our sermons. I didn't know what he was going to be talking about. He didn't know what I was going to be talking about. And so I also don't believe it's a coincidence. And so as we think about prayer this morning and we think about how that applies to our lives and how important that is, I think that we might be hearing from God and he might be telling us that we need to pray more. Um, In our individual lives, when we are in our quiet time with him, obviously, and corporately together, as we'll see here in a little bit, that we need to be in more prayer. Um, And so as I'm summing up uh, this last part of the passage, I think it's important to go back and kind of go through a little short summary on what we've talked about, because there is a context here that I think is important. James has a steady message uh, from chapter one all the way to where we're at today from the rest of chapter five. And so I just want to briefly try to go through that and talk about what James has said uh, throughout the whole book of, uh, of his letter. And so... 
Uh, chapter 1, James talked about, he began by addressing the trials and the suffering in our lives, the things that we go through, and he, he talked about that we should think differently of the trials and the suffering we deal with, that trials bring maturity in our lives, and it causes us to grow as Christians, and he actually goes as far to say that as we should think as our trials and the suffering we go through as something of joy. Uh, which sounds funny to think of it that way, but it's not really something that by thinking of it differently, our feelings are necessarily always going to change. But it gives us the facts that God is going to produce within us something that is good because of us, and so we can trust those truths, we can trust that promises, and we can live our lives based off those promises. And so he goes on to tell us that we should seek wisdom, not doubting or being a double-minded person who's trying to follow Christ in the world at the same time, and uh, that in the midst of our trials, oftentimes we're tempted, and he wants us to know that that temptation does not come from God, because sometimes we might have a heart set like, if, if God's allowing this to happen, then he's the reason I'm being tempted, and that's not the way it's going down. We're tempted because there is something that is an evil desire in us that draws us away from God, and so he touches on temptation there. Um, he talks about in the midst of trials, uh, we tend to trust in material possessions for comfort. And he's telling us, don't trust in those things because ultimately those things are going to fade and leave you with nothing. And so he's told, telling us not to put our faith in what we have. Uh, God has good things for us. It said every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Uh, but we have to trust in God, even though the world may be trusting in other things. We need to put our faith in God as we're going through trials, as we're trying to get through this life. We need to trust in him. He goes on in chapter one that says we need to be hearers of the word, but we also need to be doers of the word. That when God gives us instruction based on how we are to live our lives, that we should act upon what he's told us to do with our lives. And so sometimes we hear the word, we think we've gotten it right, and so we just kind of live our lives, but we don't take action on what God has called us to take action. And that's kind of the filter that we've ran through this whole book of James, is that James tells us to be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger, and that's talking in the context of when we hear God's word, we're quick to listen to what God instructs us, even though sometimes we may not like what God is trying to tell us, and we let that sink in and let it change our hearts, because when we're angry, he tells us in chapter one that our anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. It actually keeps God's righteousness from being fulfilled in our lives. And we go to chapter two, he tells us not to show favoritism. Uh, God's love is for all people, and so our love should be for all people. And then he goes, on to say that if we have faith in Christ, if we have faith, there will be works in our lives. We will live like we have faith in Christ. There will be evidence that we believe in him. And so works don't save us, but it's the fruit of our faith in Christ. Chapter 3, he tells us to control our tongues, and that's something that we all have trouble with. He's, he tells us that. He's like, anybody who can control their tongue and not say things is that control their entire body, and we all struggle with that. Um, but the things that we say can have a huge impact on those around us, whether it's good or bad, uh, can have a huge impact. And so it goes on to tell us to seek God's wisdom rather than our own. God's wisdom is pure, it's loving, and it's selfless. 
Man's wisdom is impure, it's unloving, and in the essence of man's wisdom, it is selfishness, seeking what's best for me. Chapter 4, he tells us to be humble instead of proud. He tells us to seek God's will instead of our own. And then through the last couple passages, chapter 5, 1 through 11, the past couple sermons that I've preached out of here, uh, James tells us not to store up treasures. And he's echoing what Jesus says when Jesus says, don't store up treasures and don't make our lives about riches. And so in essence, he's telling us not to make our lives about ourselves and the pursuit of things that the world pursues. And he goes on in the last passage I preached on, and he talks about being patient as the Lord, for the Lord as we wait for his return. And how sometimes that's difficult, because sometimes the trials we go through take our mind off the fact that he's coming back. And that we need to stay, remain focused on that, that one day he is coming back. But while we wait, we are to live as Christ has called us to live while we're here. Primarily in that passage, he told us not to complain against each other, so to love each other. Um, sometimes when distractions are because of suffering and trials, it takes us away from living the way that God has called us to live. So all in all, James was a letter to a group of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who were dealing with persecution. And because of that persecution, they scattered um, when I first preached the first chapter, I got that interpretation of who it was too wrong, uh, but I was still, I'm still learning. So, uh, but it, it's actually to Jewish people who are being persecuted in Jerusalem, and it caused them to scatter. And they are going through various trials along with the heavy persecution that the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people were bringing to Christians at that time. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week um, in the next sermon. So uh, James has been telling us, because this is is to a group of Jewish people, but it also is to uh, any church, really, so it still applies to us today. If you are a follower of Christ, your life is going to look radically different than the world around you. That's what he's been telling us, um, that we're not going to pursue the things that the world pursues. We're going to think differently. We're going to love differently. We're going to love the way that Jesus loves uh, the way that Christ does, and we're going to live differently the way that Jesus lived. We're going to be humble. We're going to be denying ourselves, and we're going to be pursuing the will of the Father uh, rather than pursuing our own will. And so he's basically saying when we become followers of Christ, we are made new, and so we should look different than the rest of the world. And so I, I don't know about you, but that's why I'm grateful for grace. Uh, because he says some pretty strong things on how we should live our lives, and it's really a tough standard to live up to. And there's many of the areas, as I've read through this, as I've studied this, as I've preached through it, that I've been convicted on in my own life. And all of us fall short in many of these areas, and so it's only by the grace of God that we can be forgiven. Because if we try to make this our standard to live by in order to be made right with God, we're going to fail every time. And so that's why we need God's grace. But we cannot come to Christ and not change. We need to draw near to God and let him make the changes that we need as we follow Jesus. And I'm going to silence this real quick. Sorry, guys. That's what James has been telling us throughout this whole book. That we need to draw near to God and let him make these changes because as Christians, there should be change in our life if we're trusting Christ. 
And so as we close, James is telling us things within this passage that go consistent with the rest of the message of the book. He talks about taking oaths. Now, this may seem kind of foreign to us, but uh, this is something he starts out addressing. And he said, basically, some of the headings in our Bibles, when we talk about oaths, uh, those headings above that verse says, tell the truth. So in essence, when we take an oath, we make a promise. We can't keep that promise. We break our oaths. It's being dishonest. And so we're going to find out a little more about that uh, here in a moment. He also tells us to turn to God in prayer. Instead of turning everything, turning to everything the world does, does, everything else that he's talked about, riches, our wisdom, our will, instead of turning to those things and trusting in those things, we turn to God in prayer. And so that's the contrast there, that prayer is turning us to God instead of turning to the things of the world. And so... And, and so that, once again, this addresses our, our behavior as Christians. It addresses who we should be putting our trust in. And then in the end of this passage, he's going to talk about confessing sin and, and not straying from the truth. And so it is consistent with James' overall message. Don't live the way the world lives with their behavior and the fact that the world trusts in all other things than God. That when we're going through trials as Christians, when we're dealing with hard things in our lives, and some of us here this morning are dealing with hard things in our lives, we need to trust God instead of what the world can give us. And so we're going to start in verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no so that you won't fall into judgment. So James says exactly what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, and uh, that shouldn't surprise us. A lot of what James had to say in this letter uh, was pulled directly from the Sermon on the Mount, and some of it was pulled from wisdom literature in the Old Testament, but a lot of it we can see comes almost directly from that. There's a little bit of different wording, but it's the same message in essence. And so we find this in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus spoke it in Matthew 5, uh, verse 33 through 37. And if you want to turn there, I'll give you a little moment to, to try to turn there. <clears throat> Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. And so oaths were, uh, were a big deal back then. It's not quite as big a deal. I mean, we do have oaths in our society uh, but they were pretty serious. They took oaths serious back then. If you look at some of the Old Testament oaths, they were there was cer- like this almost like ceremony thing that they would do for oaths. But oaths are solid statements used to validate a promise. And that's not my definition. That's just one that I looked up. And so um, when we say, maybe in our culture, we say, I swear on my mother's grave. Uh, that, that can be a common one. You're using the fact that you swear on your mother's grave to validate that I'm telling the truth or I'm going to do this. You're using a solid statement to validate a promise. And so in our history, um, 
We've also had a history of, of taking an oath in a courtroom. You know, when someone uh, places their hand on the Bible and they raise their right hand and they say, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And uh, so help me God. Now, the interesting part is because I, I've kind of heard some people say, well, we need to bring that back. And there's not very many courtrooms, I don't think, that do it as often as they used to. Uh, but, but the whole thing of it is, I think that when we did that, put our hand on the Bible and swore an oath, we failed to see verses like this within the Bible that we swore the oath on, that we're not supposed to swear an oath. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. And so Jesus and James both tell us to swear an oath, to swear on anything is wrong. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was a little more specific in the fact that he said, you have heard it said, you must keep your oaths to the Lord. So specifically, we should not make oaths to God. Uh, But James says, and Jesus says, that we should not make any oaths. And so they're not disagreeing with each other. Uh, If I'm not going to make an oath to God, why would I make an oath to someone else? Uh, Because I would still be expected to keep that promise. And so swearing an oath is the equivalent of signing a legally binding contract. Um, so does, where does that leave us in our culture today? Because we sign contracts all the time, and there's no uh, thing in the Bible that says we can't uh, sign a contract. And so, um, but I do know that there are consequences if we don't fulfill our end of the bargain. You know, making a house payment. If you don't pay off your house, you get your house taken away. There's a sense of punishment there uh, because we don't fulfill our end of the bargain. And so the real problem here is that, well, first of all, the oaths back in that day, you could be punished by death if you didn't keep your word, if you didn't keep your honest, if you weren't telling the truth about an oath. But at the root of this problem is that, you know, God is the only one who has ever kept 100% of his promises. Uh, James tells us in chapter one that God does not change like shifting shadows. Therefore, we can trust God in what he promises us. So even when we pray to God and what we're asking for God, and it seems that he gives us a no, his promises are still a resounding yes, because he is a faithful God. So we may not always get the things we're asking for, but he has made promises that he will fulfill every time. For instance, God will work all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's a promise. And I've seen him fulfill that in my life. I've seen him fulfill that in the lives of many Christians who who love him and are pursuing his will. Um, And so we're not as reliable as God. We're constantly changing in our minds. And so there tends to be an evil in sometimes in our hearts that can cause us to be tempted to lie or to go back on what we've promised when it's convenient for us. And so we don't have the authority to swear by heaven, which is God's uh, throne, as he puts it, Jesus puts it, or by the earth, which is God's footstool, um, which was all common in those days, or even by the Bible, which is God's word. Um, All of those things belong to God, and we don't have the authority to swear by them. And so when we fail to keep our promises, they become a lie. You know, if God broke his promises, he wouldn't be very trustworthy. We wouldn't be able to rely on him. God hates lies. Satan is known as the father of lies. And therefore, when we lie, we're not representing God's nature. We're representing Satan's character. Now, we think about this for a moment. God made promises when he created Adam and Eve in the garden. He promised them, first of all, that you can eat from any fruit in the garden um, except for the knowledge of good and evil. You know, you can eat from these foods. That's a, that's a promise. 
And then he goes on to say, but if you eat from this fruit, you're going to die. That's another promise. What does Satan do? Does God really say you couldn't eat from any of the fruit in the garden? Well, that's not, that's not what God said. God said you can eat from the fruit of the garden. Surely you're not going to die. Well, actually, God did promise them that they were going to die if they ate from the fruit. And so Satan twists God's promises and so we need to be a God, we need to be people, Christians who keep our promises as well. Um, because if, if we're Christians who can't keep our promises, which we, can, we fail in this from time to time, we fail in being honest all the time, um, we slander God's good name uh, who is honest and trustworthy. So if we have a godly character, that's what it's saying towards the end. If we have a godly character, we should be able to say yes, and people should be able to trust us. We should be trustworthy. And that represents God's character when we are. And so how does this fit in with the passage? Because this kind of stumped me for a little bit, because some versions, and I'm thinking mine had its own heading, um... Yeah, mine had its own heading over this verse, so it's just, it's one verse, and I'm like, I don't think that I can make a, a full sermon out of one verse, and maybe that's just me doubting what God can do. And then some of it had it linked into the previous passage, and so I had to try to think about how that fit in uh, with the passages around it. And so I actually had to do a little digging. I read a commentary. I don't typically read commentaries, but I wanted to kind of see if someone could help me understand that link. And, uh, and the person, the commentary that suggested... Um, was that, you know, we're talking about suffering, we're talking about trials in these passages, uh, that there are sometimes when we're going through trials that sometimes the temptation is to come to God and make to God a list of promises um, that if you do this for me, if you deliver me from my circumstances, then I will do this, this, and this. I will do this for you. I will change my character. I will change my ways. And I've done that within my life before, where I made promises. God, if you just deliver me from these circumstances, I, I promise I change. I swear I'm going to change. And uh, often in those moments of desperation, we say things that we're not later willing to carry out on. I know that there were many times where I've made promises to God. And then once I got through it, I didn't live up to the, what my promises were. And so both Jesus and James say that that's wrong, swearing an oath to God, um, swearing an oath at all. And so, um, so yeah, that's kind of off to itself. It seems out of place, but uh, it is very much a part of what uh, James wants us to hear. So uh, verse 13 says, If anyone among you is suffering, he should pray. Is anyone cheerful, he should sing praises. And so this is where James is pointing us to prayer. It's a very important part of the passage, is prayer. Prayer shows our reliance on God. Everything James has told us prior to this part concerning the things that we turn to, concerning turning to our will, to our ways, to our riches, instead of turning to God, those things actually lead us away from prayer. They lead us away from trusting and relying on God. This passage is the contrast. Don't turn to what the world turns to for hope. Turn to God. Prayer is communication with the Creator. The reason that suffering exists is because of the fall of mankind. 
Sin separates us from God. That's where it originated, the separation from God. Even though we as Christians have the Holy Spirit, we don't have the presence of God like was in the Garden of Eden, and we don't have the presence of God that will be when we get to heaven because there's still sin present that distracts us. It detours us from being focused on God. And so we're designed to be in the presence of God. And it is the prayer, it is through prayer that brings us into the very presence of God. The presence of God is what gives us peace and strength to make it through this life. Suffering has a tendency to lead us away from trusting God. Because I don't know how many times anybody here has asked the question, if there's a good God, why am I suffering? Why am I going through this? I've asked that a fair amount of times in my life. Um, But I've come to the conclusion is what else are we going to turn to? Uh, Because everything in this world that the world has to offer us leaves us empty. It doesn't do what they claim that it would do. It doesn't fix the suffering. All of those things that the world has to offer us focuses on what we can do with the external, what we can do with the physical side of things. Things like pleasure, things like alcohol, things like drugs, things like everything, escaping through, uh, oh, I don't know, spending time on social media or watching TV, escaping for those things, um, just spending our time trying to escape from reality. It doesn't offer what the world promises that it will. And so I remember how I used to, I used to, I used to get drunk all the time. And, uh, you know, Paul tells us, don't, don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the thing of that is, is oftentimes, sometimes we have this legalistic mindset, oh, just do this because God said not to do it. And that's why you shouldn't do this. That's why you shouldn't get drunk. And, and God does tell us not to be drunk. But the thing of it is, is that there's a reason why. He tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, as I, as I got down my journey of turning to alcohol and turning to all these other things, I realized that the more often I did those things, the more empty I felt inside. And, and why was that? Because I realized that I was turning to those things until, instead of the presence of God. That's why Paul tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so when I became a Christian, that was a long road for me to start to give that up. But I didn't just quit because God said, oh, don't do that. That was part of it. But the main reason I quit is because I realized that it was stealing the joy that I could only find in my relationship with God. And that was the worst feeling, knowing that I can drink and have fun for the night, but then the next day it's like, what did I do? What did I do? Like, I wasted time. This day I'm in a haze. I've wasted another day being sick and throwing up because I'm, I'm so drunk last night. And, and so that's the main reason. And it wasn't like an overnight thing. I had to, like, work at giving that up because it was something I turned to for a long time. But I wanted to because I knew that I needed God there instead of that. It could not do what the world told me that it would do. I have friends that continue down that life, and I pray for them, but ultimately their lives are not satisfied. And I'm not saying I have the best life where I'm happy all the time, but happiness is not the point in life. The point is to be content in everything that God gives us. The essence of suffering occurs on the inside. That's where the problem is. And so there's nothing in this world, no amount of things that we can turn to that can fix what's on the inside. That's why we need God. That's why we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
No amount of medication that we can be put on uh, could fix what's going on on the inside. And I'm not saying medication's bad. I take medication when I have some real bad anxieties, but ultimately it doesn't fix what goes on inside. I need more than that. I need to be closer to God. And so the hardest fact that we have to wrestle with as Christians is that God does not always remove the things in our life that causes us to suffer. That's a burden to us. You know, the hardest part to realize is that God never promises us a suffering-free world, a suffering-free life. And, and we can look at the characters in the Bible and see that. I don't want to belittle this because there's many of you in this room who have lost more than what I've lost in this life, who you've lost loved ones, you've lost spouses, you've lost parents. I haven't experienced that yet. I really haven't. And so I, 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 I've gone through some things, but I haven't been through what many of you have been through. But those of you who have been through those things and you've drawn near to God, you know that it's his promises that sustain you. But the only thing that God promises us throughout the whole Bible, because we can see the characters of the Bible who are going through difficult things, who are losing people in their lives, the only thing that God promises is to be with us. And he does that through the Holy Spirit and through prayer. And so if you're a Christian and you're seeking rest and peace in this life, in this world while you're here, your day of perfect rest and peace is coming. There will be a day where there is no more suffering. There will be a day where there's no more hard times that we go through. There's no more loss of loved ones. There's no more pain. But while we're here on this earth, the only one who can bring us to moments of peace to help us endure in this life is God. And it's in those long moments where we get lost in our prayers with God that we have approached the very throne of God. You know, it's not just coming to God and being like, oh God, help me. God, deliver me from this. Get me out of this situation. We seek God, not just for what he can do for us, but to simply be in a moment with the one who we were created to be with. Suffering occurs because of the absence, the perfect absence of God's presence in our life. That's what prayer is. Seeking God's presence in our lives. It's not just a checklist of wishes, although God wants to hear our concerns. He wants to hear our burdens, but it's, it's being with God. It's communion with the Father. It's in those moments that we find peace and we find strength to keep going. And as we dwell in the presence of God who loves us, I mean, really dwell in his presence, we begin to find healing. James in chapter 1 tells us that the suffering and the trials are meant to build within us faith and strength to become who we are supposed to be. But in the process of the faith and trials, if we just go through the faith and trials and don't draw near to God, we're not going to mature in the way that he has intended us to through the trials because we're not fully trusting him. He goes on in that verse to say, and then he tells us to sing praises when we're cheerful, uh, which can be easy when you're not going through difficult times in life. It's a lot harder to sing praises to God when you're suffering and you're struggling. And so we should sing praises to God when we are cheerful, ultimately, because every good thing comes from God, everything in our lives that is good. 
Every good and perfect gift is from God. That's what it says in James chapter 1. So when we're cheerful because of what God has given us, we need to sing praises. Um, Praising God leads to a continuous heart of gratitude. If I learn to sing praises to God continuously when I'm experiencing the good in life, then it can become easier to praise God when I'm going through the trials and suffering in life. It's an issue of practicing those things. But whether I'm singing praises or expressing praise in prayer, it puts me in the right heart to remain grateful, even though there are hard times that I'm going through. I can remember the times where I had to learn to thank God. I'm not always good at it, but there were times where I was going through some really bad moments as a Christian after I came to Christ, and I had to learn how to thank God even though I couldn't see, like, what am I supposed to thank God for? Um, And it, it was hard. I started trying to keep a Thanksgiving journal, and I think that's one of the only things that sustained me Uh, through some of the darker times I was going through. Uh, But Philippians chapter chapter 4, 4 through 7, Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your request to God, and the peace of God will surpass all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's been a very beneficial thing for me in my life when I can practice it, when I can always kind of get myself to practice it, to bring your, your petition, to bring your sorrows to God, but you also bring your thanksgiving. And, and one thing it's hard to think about sometimes is that there's always something to be thankful for. I mean, I don't want to downplay anybody's struggles, but there is always something to be thankful for, especially in the country in which we live. We are totally blessed in this country. Um, So when we are suffering, we pray, and when we are cheerful, we praise. It is all wrapped up with what Paul says here in these verses, that we pray and we praise, and they really go hand in hand. I don't think we have to separate them. Like, if I'm I'm suffering, I pray, and if I'm praising, I sing. Like, I think praising and thanking and expressing our suffering and our pain goes hand in hand. I think those all accompany each other when we come to God in prayer and sing to Him. We come to God in prayer, whether we are suffering or cheerful, pouring out our pain and our suffering, but also thanking God for what he's done for us. And it's through this time, praying and praising God, as we practice it regularly, that we begin to find peace and strength. And the more we do so, we carry that peace and strength with us as we go. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So when James is talking about anyone who is sick, it really seems to be that that person is on their deathbed, perhaps. I mean, that seems to be the indication that they can't even pray for themselves, maybe. Uh, it could be some sort of other element, but I think this is more of a severe moment. The first thing he says is to call for the elders. Now, it's interesting. Elders are something we don't really have. It's not really something present in this church. But the Bible does make a case for elders being present in a church. It is a biblical thing. 
Um, and, and so sometimes we don't know what elders are, and I, I've recently just learned basically what elders are. Uh, elders are essentially pastors. I mean, we don't think of them that way, but they're essentially pastors, and they're usually in groups, hence the term plural term, elders. Um, but they were responsible for explaining scripture, teaching doctrine, and visiting the sick. And so does that sound familiar? Like that's essentially what Pastor Bill's been doing for the past five years since he's been here. He's been explaining doctrine, explaining scripture, uh, teaching doctrine, and visiting the sick. Everything that pastors do in our culture that we don't necessarily call elders, uh, it's basically the same thing. Um, and, and there's probably more to that that Pastor Bill will talk about later. Uh, but they're called men. They're those who are devoted to, devoted to they're those who are devout to God, serving the Lord by serving the church. And so the instruction is for the one who is sick to call for the elders who will then come, anoint them with oil, and pray over them. Now, anointing with oil is also something we don't really do a lot in our culture. Uh, it's something that we don't practice very, but it is a biblical thing. It is something that God tells us to do. You know, when you remember when they talked about fasting for prayer, people were to anoint their head with oil. Um, it was something that was very common back then. It was for the coronation of kings. So you think King Saul, King David, they were anointed with oil. It was for cleansing. It was for medicinal purposes or for setting someone apart for God's special attention. And in this particular case, I believe that it's setting someone apart for God's special attention, that we're going to pray over this person. And, and so that's a representing that. There is no special power in the oil. It's all symbolic. But the main focus here is the prayer. And so this is an appeal for God to heal this person. But it's also an appeal for God for the forgiveness of the individual's sin. That's what it says there. It says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Um, and so and we know that God does not always heal every single person. And, and that's the hard reality of, of the world that we live in. We know that he could. We know that when Jesus was here, he could have healed every single person. Uh, but he doesn't always do that. And so when it talks about being raised up, when it talks about being like saving them, it is more than likely suggesting the spiritual state of their heart, um, spiritual state of that person. That's why it talks, it links that to confessing sins. It's in the same verse. Um, so think of Job who lost everything and he went through all this suffering and it was through the interaction with God that he felt restored by the end of the book. Um, but God did not absolve him of all the things that he had to go through. God's main concern, and sometimes this is hard to take, but God's main concern in our life is not the physical always, but the physical, but the spiritual, sorry. He does care about our physical needs. That is important to him. And we should feel free to approach his throne and pray about those things. But he is primarily concerned about the spiritual state of our souls. And this is why before Jesus healed the paralytic, he said, take heart, your sins are forgiven. That is the most important because their physical bodies are temporary, but our souls are eternal. And so those things, it is important to be right with God in our hearts. Um, and, and then there are times where um, it is, is he refers to confessing sins that we may be healed. There are times where sickness is the result of our sin. Not all the time. So if, you, if you've got a loved one that's sick, it doesn't mean that it's sin that's caused it. Uh, but that is something that Paul tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty through 32 This is because their hearts weren't where they should be. And he said, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. 
But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are being judged in this way, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. And so sin can lead to sickness. Uh, That's what James is telling us. That's what um, Paul tells us in that passage. Uh, And so sometimes sickness is the result of sin. And so when, when we pray... God does want to hear hear our elements. And I think that's the whole point of that. He wants to hear what we're going through. He wants to hear our suffering. Uh, But he also wants us to be right with him. And that's important. And so I think that that's what it most likely means by this at this point. And God can heal that person. Um, But it's through faith and earnest prayer that we approach these situations. Okay, so verse 16. Therefore confess your sins to one another for one another, so that you may be healed. The power of a righteous person is a powerful thing, is powerful in its effect. So he goes on to say that confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another, we may be healed. Not every sin, I don't believe every sin needs to be confessed. There are some things that are between us as brothers and sisters that I think we should confess that to. I think maybe there are sins that if we feel comfortable confessing to another brother or sister, that I think that's a good thing to do. And then I think that there are past sins in our lives that's just between us and God. He's taking care of it, and I don't think that always, that always needs to come out. And so, um, but this does talk about us confessing our sins to one another. And so it has the potential of being healed because of that. Um, But even if it's not a physical healing, there is a healing that goes in our hearts when we confess and we make those things right. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where maybe you've told a lie or you've done something that you know is wrong and so there's some sort of like feeling in there and it keeps eating away at you, that when you talk about that, there's an oftentimes like a release there, there's a healing that happens. Um, so in all this prayer... He says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. Jesus tells us to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness first, and he'll take care of us and the things in this life. And so God is more likely to answer the prayers of someone who is trusting in him with their lives and seeking his will in all things and then those who are going their own way and they're not trusting him. And there's a lot of times as Christians in our lives where we're not as faithful to God, we're not pursuing his righteousness, and we're not close to him. Um, and James is telling us the prayer of a righteous person, those who are seeking righteousness, is a powerful prayer. Uh, because when you're trusting in God over the things of this world, uh, you're putting your faith in God more so than anything else. And so a righteous person who puts God first at the center of their lives Um, a righteous person who asks in all things, God, what is your will for my life? That's the type of righteousness we're seeking. And this is why James says to call for the elders, because if the elders are seeking righteousness the way that they're supposed to, their prayers are going to be powerful. Uh, Their prayers are going to be very impactful to the situation. And so if they're dedicated to righteousness, and so it's through the prayer of a righteous person, God accomplishes great things. And so we're going to see that here in verse 17. Uh, Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it would not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Uh, So God gives us the example of Elijah and demonstrates how work 
through righteous people, how God works through righteous people who are just as human as the rest of us. Elijah was a righteous man, but he was only righteous because of his faith in God. So if we think about Abraham, who believed what God says and it was accredited righteousness to him, he trusted in God. Elijah trusted in God and God worked through him because of that. He was dedicated to God and God did miraculous things through him. And so sometimes we doubt the miraculous things that can be done if we haven't experienced those situations where we've had faith in God and we've pursued him earnestly, that he can work things out for good. And that's what the Bible tells us. That's God's promise. Um, I believe all across our country and many churches that we would see more miracles if we were pursuing prayer the way that God has instructed us to. And that's what James says, not anything that I say. James says that people pursuing righteousness over the things of this world. And so when you're devoted to Christ, um, you will see many things that God does that you won't even be able to explain or comprehend. I mean, that, I mean, what happened back in Elijah's days is still things that can happen on our day. Um, a, a lot of that comes by being made right with God, drawing near to Him, trusting Him, regular prayer, devotion, and seeking His will for our lives. And these are all areas that can be a struggle for us uh, to remain faithful in. Um, but I think when we are pursuing God's will for our lives, because there are times where I, I'm straying from pursuing God's will for my life, but I know the times that I do pursue God's will and I am pursuing his will, um, when we do these things, when we seek God, I come to find that when we do this, it becomes less about the physical things that we were searching for before. It becomes less about the list of wishes that we had before. Because when we're seeking God with all of our hearts, we realize that God is actually all we need. That he is actually all we need in our lives. And it doesn't mean the other things are no longer important. Uh, but those things seem to pale in, pale in comparison compared to what God wants to give us. Um, and I think that reminds me of, uh, well, I don't remember the song, but it says... The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So as we seek God, the things around us will seem to not matter as much um, as the closer we get to God. He goes on to say, My brothers and sisters, if any among you stray from the truth and, and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul in death from a multitude of sins. And so, uh, like I was saying, like this, there's just so many different things within this passage that it kind of seems to, I mean, it fits together, but it kind of seems to jump around a bit. But uh, he's telling us as Christians, we have a responsibility to be accountable to each other. And so I, I think sometimes we abuse that accountability. I think sometimes we ignore how we're supposed to be accountability. Accountability, being accountable to something, is not accompanied by wrath. It's not accompanied by judgment, but it's accompanied with patience and love and a sincere heart, a sincere love for the person who might be straying from the truth uh, or might be walking away from their faith. Um, and, and that's what James says in chapter 2, verse one, uh, 12 through 13. He says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law, that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Merciful triumphs over judgment. And so I, I believe there's been many people who have left churches all across this country because when they were struggling with their faith or when they got in the habit of dabbling into sin, people did not have any mercy on them. And I believe that there's been many people who have left church because of that. And that's not always the reason. I'm not narrowing it down to that one 
uh, but the, the lack of mercy that sometimes we tend to show when we think we're better than uh, the other person is something that God will not show mercy to us when we do that. I mean, he says that right here. That's what James says. It's not something that I say. Um, that, that if we show mercy to others in love and patience, God will show mercy to us. Uh, sometimes the person who strays from the truth never knew God. And John tells us that in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. And so I think about a lot of my friends who grew up in church and claimed to know Christ. And, and I can't judge their souls ultimately, but they were baptized, some of them as infants, some of them as adults. Um, and now as they've grown up, they're nowhere to be found in church. They're chasing their lives. They're some of the ones that I talked about earlier that, you know, I got away from getting drunk all the time, but they're still living that life and they have no desire to serve God or anything like that. Sometimes that's who they're, they strayed from the truth. Now, whether they knew the truth or actually didn't know the truth, that's not for me to judge. Um, but there are many people, perhaps even sitting here this morning, that believe themselves to know Christ, but don't. Um, because they haven't really given their lives to Christ. So, but um, regardless of whether that person is a Christian or not, our job as children of God is to gently, patiently, and persistently try to guide that person back to the truth, no matter who they are. To show love, to show mercy, to be patient with them. God is merciful and he will always forgive any sin. Just like the father, who, the, the father of the prodigal son, he waits for all of us to come back to him when we stray away. And he welcomes those who never knew him. And he's always ready and willing to forgive the sin that keeps them from him. And so, um, that being said, I, I wouldn't be doing any justice if I didn't talk about what the truth was this morning and wrap it up real quick, is that the truth is the gospel. And, and many of us in here have heard the gospel. Many of us accepted the gospel. Uh, but the truth is, is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've fallen short of his love and his acceptance. And uh, because of our sin, we're separated from God. We're distanced from him because of that. And in order for us to be forgiven, there has to be a punishment for our sins. Like, think about the fact if there was a murderer, a judge just said you could go free, that wouldn't be very just. And we want a God who's just, who doesn't just let uh, things go whenever justice needs to be served. But the beautiful thing of it is, is that even though we deserve punishment because we've done the wrong things, we've sinned against God, God is still merciful, he's still loving, he still desires a relationship with us. And so what he did in order for us to be forgiven and escape the punishment is he sent his son Jesus into this world over 2,000 years ago to live the perfect life, this life that we've learned in James where God expects us to be like that, that standard that we can never reach because we're not good enough. And even if we tried to be good enough, it's still not good enough to meet God's standard. We fall short, but Jesus did not. And so when Jesus was on this earth, he lived that perfect life. And when he went to the cross, he took our place, paying our debt with his perfection. So that when we believe in him, when we believe in him, we can be forgiven of everything we've ever done wrong. And then as our faith is in him, if you believe in him, then the result of that will be repentance. 
Faith in Jesus leads us to leave our lives behind that goes astray. The lives where we're going the opposite way that God tells us to do. Faith in Jesus says, look, I'm going to trust Jesus now. I'm going to trust what he has told me to do with my life. And we're going to repent and we're going to turn and trust him to follow him. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. And I, I, hope, that, I hope that everyone in here has accepted that truth, has given their lives to Christ, and uh, has been forgiven of their sins. Because that is the truth. That is the truth that many stray from. That's the truth that many of the people who I love and know have walked away from. And, uh, and I'm hoping that, that hearing that this morning, hearing the truth can guide you back to that. Um, so uh, we're going to pray. As the, uh, we're going to have some silent prayer for a moment. Um, that If you could just talk to God. If you're, maybe you're sitting there and you're uh, realizing that you don't have a prayer life that's that dedicated to God. You just take this time to talk to him. Or maybe you're realizing that maybe you haven't given your life to Christ. Take this opportunity to talk to him about that. And then after a few moments, I'll pray and we'll close.